Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and Lord, we praise you that the holy, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and yet God the Son, came to earth and lived in a human body and died in our place. Lord, we rejoice in that this morning. We're grateful that even the, the world as a whole will stop and recognize the anniversary of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet, Lord, the truth of this is not to be realized just once a year, but every day through our lives. We ask as we dedicate this worship service to you that we truly would worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for he is worthy. And Lord, we pray for those that are among us this morning. We couldn't believe that in a crowd this size, there wouldn't be some here that have yet to trust you as their personal Savior. They may know the whole story, but the Bible says it is a personal belief in a personal God that saves us. We ask for that this morning. And we ask that you would challenge us, encourage us to live for you in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 26, we'll be spending most of our time there this morning. We'll be moving around just a little bit, but this morning I want to give a message that is somewhat in contrast, uh, somewhat... Uh, connected to last Sunday morning's message. Last Sunday morning, we spent our time reviewing the greatest single act of worship work toward the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethany. Uh, Saturday night, just before Jesus rode the donkey through the gate of Jerusalem, uh, on Sunday, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, had taken a box of alabaster ointment, an alabaster box of precious ointment and had anointed the head of Jesus. Uh, We spent last Sunday morning talking about the value, how that that would be in excess of a year's salary, how that it was precious, how that it would have literally stopped everything in the room and put all the attention on Jesus Christ. That's the essence of true worship. Worship is lifting up the holiness, the greatness, and the goodness of God. Now, there's something that will naturally occur as you try to grapple with these great and incomprehensible truths. How many of you have ever tried to pick up something very heavy? What happens? You go down. You even if you're capable of carrying that weight, you're you're going to be bent just a little bit. You're going to be lowered by the heaviness of the burden that you're trying to carry or struggle with. And the natural thing that ought to happen with worship is we as human beings try to grasp the goodness, the greatness, the holiness, the love of God. It ought naturally to push us down. 
You see, in order for you to understand God, you've got to get past the greatest obstacle in your way. You. That's why God reveals himself as he has in his word because it automatically forces us to come to a stark, harsh understanding. God does not need me. God cannot be benefited in any way by anything I do. He's God. What he simply wants is for me as his created being to understand who he is and allow him to have that rightful place in our heart and life. That's worship. By the way, that kind of worship ought to change the way you live when you leave church and go to work on Monday morning. Amen? Uh, Do you think it's still out of work on Tuesday morning? Could you say amen? I don't think you believe that. Now, let's let's start over. If, If you have real worship of God, should it affect the way you live every day? It should. Why doesn't it? Well, it's this nasty, horrible thing called our human nature. It's what I was born with. It's who I really am. And when I come to Jesus, he changes that. Amen? He allows the Holy Spirit of God to come and dwell within us. And as we comprehend and understand that and allow the Holy Spirit of God to have his way, it changes every point about us. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we walk. It should change the places we go. It should change the decisions that we make. It should change the clothes that we wear, the music we listen to, the entertainment we allow ourselves to be entertained with. It ought to change everything. I've often asked the question, if Jesus Christ himself came down in physical form again and sat in your living room for a week, what would change? Well, boy, I'd I'd better erase the history on my uh, web browser. Uh, Better put the magazines away, and I'll throw away the TV guide for that week. I I don't think the Lord would be interested in that. I'll tell you, uh, you don't have to think about it. He's not. Amen. Uh, You say some things would change, yet the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit of God is living within us. You see, this is one of the problems we have with modern religion, we have developed a tradition in in some churches where we come in and the church is all about making you feel better. You understand how good you are. You realize your goals. That's the antithesis. It is the absolute opposite of everything Jesus talked about. See, as a human being, I am sinful. I have marred the image I was created in. I do not naturally desire what is best and what is going to give the most benefit in my life. Just one quick example. If we got us a little container of ice cream 
one of those death by chocolate with fudge chocolate chunks and raspberries and everything else in there. Uh, Have you ever read the label on one of those stupid things? They can put more calories in one little pint of ice cream than you can get in a whole meal at McDonald's. Uh, I don't know how they do it. But how many would say, I sure do enjoy it every once in a while? (laughs) Isn't that good? Now, if you had the choice between one of those and a plate of raw spinach, you say, that's not fair. But it's true. Which one's better for you? And I know somebody out there is already thinking, I'll eat the spinach first and then get the ice cream. Uh, You won't undo what that ice cream does with one little plate of spinach, let me tell you. That is our human nature. We like what's wrong. It's the way we were born. It's the way we are programmed. We are the sons of Adam. Only God can change what goes on in our heart. That's what worship is all about. That's what we want to do this morning. But last morning, last Sunday morning's message was came from the words that Jesus used as he commended Mary for her act of worship. He said, She hath done what she could. And he said, Everywhere the gospel is preached, her story is going to be told of for a memorial for her. Because she worshiped me the way I want to be worshipped. That's what Jesus was saying. This morning, I want us to look at He hath done what only He could do. Jesus did some things that only Jesus could do. Someone actually quite a few years ago coined a little phrase, wrote a book, and, uh, and quite almost a cultic following. WWJD. Does anybody know what that stands for? What would Jesus do? Now, I'm not here just to be critical, but I, I want you to understand that 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 statement, that question is not a biblical question. What did Jesus do when he met a blind man? Made him see, didn't he? Can you do that? No. What did Jesus do? Everywhere he went. The apostle said he did good. Now, how many of you would raise your hands saying, my life this past week is characterized I did only good. Anybody going to be that bold and that brash and that arrogant to raise their hand and say that this morning? My hand's not up saying I did good. Because I'm a human being. There were some things that I did that I'm not proud of this morning. I'm glad that Jesus paid the price for all sins and he forgives us. Amen? Can you say amen to that this morning? The question is not what would Jesus do? 
That's a really and truly a dishonest question. You can't do what Jesus did because you're not Jesus. I can't tell you how many people sat in my office and said, Pastor, I know what's right to do, but I can't do it. I'm not God. I said, I'm glad you understand that. That's good. That's a good starting place because there's a lot of people that don't understand that. They think they're God. You say, I've never met one. Turn on the TV. They're going to save the planet. Who does the planet belong to? God. He'll take care of it very fine without you. And I'm not saying go out and pollute and do rotten things, but let me tell you, study your history. God doesn't need you to save his universe. He made it a little better than that. Amen? The question is, what does Jesus want you to do? Remember in John chapter 6, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. He had walked across the Sea of Galilee without the aid of a boat. Scared the disciples half to death. Remember that story? And the next morning, all the people that had enjoyed that meal on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee had walked around or taken other shipping and come across, and they found Jesus in the city of Capernaum. And they said, uh, when's lunch? We enjoyed yesterday. We're ready to do it again today. And Jesus addressed them and he said, listen, he said, you're not following me because you believe in who I am. You're following me because you enjoyed the dinner. And they asked him a question, said, what, what should we do? What can we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, you asked the right question. Let me answer it. This is the work of God. That ye should believe on him whom he has sent. That's the work of God. You see, Jesus did some things no other human being could do. Jesus did some things that cannot be replicated through human effort. So much of religion is trying to do what Jesus Christ already did. That's why it's futile. That's why it's empty. That's why it's frustrating. That's why it's full of fear. That's why it's full of violence in many cases. Because a human being can only go so far. Then they have to resort to evil because that's all the farther they can go. But let's look what Jesus did. Let's go to Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 39. Speaking about Jesus here. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. This is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. I love the way Matthew words it. He set eight of the disciples in one area. Judas was already gone to betray him. He took three a little further, 
And then he himself went a little further on his own. Jesus is trying to illustrate something to us. He's trying to help us see if we'll just look at the story there in that garden in the dark of night. As Jesus separated himself from all human attachments, he went a little farther by himself. He fell on his face and he prayed. The Bible tells us that the emotional anguish that Jesus was feeling at this time produced sweat as it were great drops of blood. Now people have come up with all kinds of things. They said Jesus was afraid of the cross. That's that's ridiculous. We're not even going to take time to talk about that. Uh, Some preachers have said, well, the devil was trying to kill him in the garden and that's what uh, Jesus was protecting himself. Oh, come on. Let's, Let's just get real here. Let me tell you what was going on. Jesus was trying to illustrate for you and I, help us get a hold of something, help us grasp this thing of how horrible, how evil, how much God hates our sin. If you want to see what God thinks about sin, you start reading from the Gethsemane to the end of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Just read it in your Bible. That's how much God hates sin. Jesus was not afraid of anything. In a few moments, he's going to be arrested and he's going to tell Peter to put up his sword. He said, listen, I got to fulfill the scriptures. He spent three hours in prayer. Three different times he comes back. Twice he comes back and says, couldn't you pray with me one hour? The second time he comes back, he doesn't say anything. The third time he comes back and he says, you can sleep now, time's up. Jesus gave us just a little look into the heart and soul of God himself and what he feels about sin. Jesus knew he would drink that cup. He knew he would suffer on the cross. He knew all of those things were to be done. That was the reason why he came. What was going on in his life was so incredible that it actually put the disciples to sleep just to watch it. Have you ever been around someone who is just consumed with grief and mourning? It wears you out, doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to be there very long before you just start feeling overcome. You say, I got, I got to get out and get a fresh breath of fresh air here. I got to do something. This, this is just too much for me to handle. The disciples, when they saw Jesus, the Bible says, he became very sore, amazed, and very heavy as he contemplated the act that he alone as God was going to perform on our behalf. Jesus was not afraid. He was not fearful. He was not stepping back from the cross trying to decide whether he would go through it or not. Only Jesus knows how horrible sin is. If we could just get a little hold of that, 
if we could just understand. God calls sin, sin for one reason. If you know the verse, say it with me. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. God calls sin, sin for a reason because it'll kill you. I don't care what sin it is. Even the psychologists figure out something once in a while. They'll say, if you in your daydream, in your mind, will live through any given scenario, you will have taken the same physical and emotional toll on your body as if you had physically done those things. If you'll think through something three different times, allow your mind to walk down that pathway, it says that your body will endure the same physical weakness and, and all of those things that is if you had physically done it with your hands. Now, please don't use that as an excuse to go out and kill somebody, all right? I mean, we're not trying to be, I'm just trying to help you understand that you think it's all on the inside and nobody sees it and nobody knows what's going on. God knows what's going on. But let me tell you something, that body you're living in knows what's going on too. Where do you think all of these diseases that we have today come from? I met a guy several years ago. He said, it's all chlorine in the water. He said, you, you study the Alaskans. They said, they eat whale fat and they come down here and they start drinking chlorinated water and they drop over dead. I said, you know, I said, let me, let me just give you a thought here. I said, how about stress? And just walked away. That's what really kills people, isn't it? It's what we do to ourselves because of our sin. That's why Jesus was under such anguish in the garden. He could see it all. He can see what sin does to you. How it makes you old before your time. How it weakens you. How it just literally can disintegrate your insides when everything on the outside looks fine. And one other thing he saw is that he would pay the price for every sin that was ever sinned. And us, human beings, his creation would say no to the creator. I'll do it my way. I got my religion. I'm just as good as the guy next door. Be careful what you say. You don't know who's living next door to you around here. Only Jesus knew how horrible sin is. He tried to illustrate that by going just a little further in the garden. Three hours of earnest prayer that developed a sweat of human blood upon his brow. That's how horrible sin is. 
It's so horrible that he was willing to endure the cross, the Bible tells us, despising the shame. But I want to tell you something else. Jesus was the only person in the world that knew how horrible sin was. Do you remember what Peter said to Jesus when he said, I'm going to be crucified the first time, Matthew chapter 16? He said, be it far from thee, Lord. I'm not going to let that happen to you. What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest the things of man, not the things of God. He said, you don't understand how bad sin is yet, Peter. You have no comprehension of what I've come to do. But we get just a little look in the garden. Just a glimpse on the cross of how horrible our sin is. We live in a society that's full of personal responsibility, do we not? I mean, everybody I've met, I'm going to take personal responsibility for not filling out my taxes. Still Secretary of the Treasury. You don't fill out your taxes, you take personal responsibility because the IRS puts you in jail. Isn't that what happens? Personal responsibility means that you've solved the problem. All the way. Not that you go back and redo what you undid or didn't do. But you solve the problem. You fix it completely. I don't know anybody wants to do that today, do you? If you didn't pay your taxes, let's just dwell on that horrible, hateful subject for a moment. You've been cheating on your taxes for 25 years. Are you going to go into the IRS and pay everything you owe with interest and everything for 25 years? You won't find a lawyer in the country that will help you do that. That's personal responsibility though, isn't it? You see, that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And by the way, let me tell you, he's the only one that could take personal responsibility for your sin. He's the only one that could make it right. Our second point this morning is that Jesus is the only one capable of fulfilling God's demands. He is the only one capable of fulfilling God's holiness. You see, God is a holy God. That means... He has never once done anything wrong. He has never once broken his own law. Never has God done anything that is hurtful or harmful or not in the best interest of his creation. Someone says, well, how can that be true if he sends people to hell? Well, that's a whole other sermon, but let me just give it to you in a sentence. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for every sin. Hell is non-topical. If you're going to go to hell today, you're going to go there in spite of Jesus Christ, not because of him. You're going to go because you have rejected what he has already done for you. 
The only way any person gets into hell is kicking, screaming, and fighting against God, whether it be through the auspices of false religion or through what we call today the Greenwich Village culture, you're still fighting against God. And that's the only way you get to hell. Let's go down Matthew chapter 26. Let's move down just a few verses here. And... um, Just a second here. I'm sorry. Jesus was in the garden, verse 52. I'm sorry, I'm here. There, let's go to verse 52. Peter had tried to protect Jesus. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Now, verse 54 is where we want to start. But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled? Now, look at this last phrase. That thus it must be. Jesus used the angels. If you were here for Sunday school this morning, we went over this in our Sunday school. Twelve legions of angels is over 80,000 soldiers and horsemen. Jesus said, I can call 12 legions of angels, but let me tell you something. Jesus was more powerful than all those angels all by himself. Only Jesus could surrender himself to fulfill God's holiness. Jesus said the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus did nothing to protect himself. Let me challenge you today, without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will spend the greatest part of your effort in your life trying to protect yourself in one way or another. With Jesus Christ as your Savior, you ought to allow Him to do all the protecting for you. Our entire culture is built on self-preservation, is it not? You should fight for the best wages that you can get because someday you're going to have to pay your own way. You you should have a savings program. You should have uh, uh, all of these things. It's all about protecting yourself. And they have all of these seminars on how to retire as a millionaire. You ever been to one of those? I'll tell you what, it doesn't work. It's all built on this little thing called interest. And they ain't giving it anymore. Got an offer from a bank, 3% interest. This is the best rate you're ever going to get. Well, in order to retire a millionaire, you need about 10 to 12% interest in order to make it work. Not going to happen. Listen. What did they say about Jesus? 
every filthy abominable thing imaginable the night he was betrayed and arrested and tried, did they not? They called in all these false witnesses. And these witnesses testified against Jesus. And we come down to, to verse 59. It says, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council saw false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it again in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now as you read those verses, I don't know if you can hear the mental... Madness setting in in the mind of the high priest. They've been at this all night. The sun's coming up. They've got to do something to convict this guy. And he's had a parade of clowns and misfits and uh, give me a little money and I'll say anything you want. All night long parading before this august body of religious leaders and they couldn't get even the paid witnesses to agree with each other. Finally, as a last strike of madness, he gets up and he demands Jesus to either deny or identify himself as the Messiah of the Jewish people, as the Christ, as the chosen one of God. And Jesus simply answers him, Verse 64, thou hast said. He said, you said it right. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He says, you're going to see me. And I'm going to be your judge one day. That's what he was telling them. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying and to whom he was saying it. He knew that they would use his speech to condemn him to death and that was the only way that he could be condemned to death. He gave them what they needed. Because they couldn't, they were so dumb, they couldn't even come up with it on their own. That's man's efforts. Jesus didn't protect himself. Only Jesus could have fulfilled the requirements of God's holiness. And Jesus did fulfill those requirements, amen? Let's go to John chapter 19, the greatest uh, words spoken in all of history. In the Hebrew, it would only be one word. In our English, it's a couple. Let's look at verse 30 of John chapter 19. It says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. Can I challenge you 
that only God could make that claim? How many of you have been involved in religion of some type in your life somewhere? Just raise your hand a moment. I just want to see here. You've, you've been religious somewhere. Now, you go to church, you go to your religious organization, and what do they tell you? You'd better do what we say so one day you might be good enough to go to heaven. Doesn't that boil down all the religions of the world into a sentence? And yet that goes directly against what Jesus said right here now, doesn't it? Doesn't that contradict what Jesus said? If it is finished, my friend, what is there left for you to do? This is the difference between all false religion and the truth. You say, but shouldn't a believer in Jesus live a good life? Uh, yeah, but read Galatians chapter 2. How do you live that good life? You live by the faith of the Son of God that dwelleth in me. It's because of Jesus I do good things, not to be pleasing to Jesus. There's a lot of people that criticize and hate religion today. And I'll be the first to say that I agree with about 90% of what they say. Jesus' sharpest criticisms were not against the sinners and the publicans. They were against the religious crowd. Because Jesus knew, and only Jesus could state, that it is finished. And if it is finished... There's nothing left for you to do but to receive and to believe what God has done. That's the essence of salvation. Anything you do to try to make yourself pleasing to God is denying the truth that Jesus spoke from the cross that it is finished. Anything you're trusting in other than those three words is not going to get you to heaven because only Jesus paid the price. There's lots of people that have made all kinds of claims. How many of you remember Henry, uh, Harry Houdini, the great magician? You've heard of him. Anybody remember his last great claim? He says, if it's possible, he says, I'm going to communicate from the dead. Anybody heard from Harry Houdini lately? You want me to tell you the most ridiculous one of all? Does anybody know the name Mary Baker Eddy? She had about six other names in there. She was married eight different times. But she's going to tell you how to straighten out your life. She knew. I guess she had a lot of experience, but I don't know that I'd trust her. How about you? She's the founder of the Christian science movement. Not the, um, not the Christian scientist, but the Christian science. If you drive through Manhattan, I, I can't remember what avenue it's on. It's on the Upper West Side. There's the Christian science reading room. That was the original one that she built. I think they're going to sell it, close it down very soon. Uh, but when Mary Baker Eddy died, she had a, uh, a live telephone put in her casket and the wire went down and was buried with her because she said, 
I'm going to call you back from the dead. You laugh at me. It really happened. I mean, I, uh, you went out to the cemetery and there's a telephone line right down into the ground. I can't remember how many years ago it was. It wasn't that many. Uh, definitely in our lifetime. I think she died in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. They paid that telephone bill for like 40 years. Finally, they figured out that maybe she wasn't calling and they cut the line. Let me tell you something. Jesus prophesied that he would rise again from the dead before he did. Let's turn to John chapter 10. Verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. How could you get more plain than that? He said, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to take it again. He said, I have the power to die and to come back to life. Now, we gave two silly illustrations of human beings that made a very similar claim, and, and they brought a little laugh and snickers, and, well, they should because of how foolish it is for a human being to make that statement. I want to tell you, only Jesus could make that statement and live up to it. Amen? You say, but I don't think... Uh, people understood what he meant. I mean, even his own disciples didn't believe that he rose again from the dead until he, he showed himself to them and let them touch him and ate and talk to them and all of these things. Uh, I want to challenge you to go back to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Don't worry, we're almost done. Matthew chapter 27. And let's go down to verse 63. It says, well, verse 62. Now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Can you get any more clear than that? His enemies understood what he said. They understood the claims that Jesus made. The disciples didn't. But the scribes and the Pharisees did. And here's the most amazing thing. When the Roman soldiers came to see those same chief priests and Pharisees Sunday morning and gave them the story that this being descended out of the clouds, picked up the 5,000-pound piece of stone that was over the tomb and threw it to the side, they still refused to believe that Jesus had risen again from the dead. I want to challenge you that the biblical record is true whether you want to believe it or not. There are many people that have investigated this truth. You cannot overturn. You cannot subvert truth. You can try. The best thing you can do is deny it. 
And that's what people have done over the years. And the God of the Bible is such a good God that He's not going to force you to accept what is true. He will allow you to deceive yourself and others around you. But in Acts chapter 5, we're not going to turn there. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. But in Acts chapter 5, even Gamaliel, one of their greatest leaders of the Sanhedrin and of the Jewish religion, said, you know what, we ought to let these guys alone because... If it's really of God, it, we're not going to stop it. He said, lest we be found to fight against God. Now, there's no evidence that Gamaliel ever believed in Jesus Christ, but he had enough sense and enough information, my friend, to make a more intelligent decision than many people do today in rejecting Jesus Christ. He was one of the haters. He was one of the ones that if he were in the Sanhedrin was for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet when faced with Jesus' disciples, he said, uh, I just let these guys alone. Maybe they are from God. Pretty incredible testimony from a hater of Jesus Christ, is it not? Now I want you just to look at a few verses here. We're going to start in... Verse 12, this is testimony of John. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. John gives us a description of the resurrected Lord here. He said, I fell at his feet, as dead. His greatness overpowered me. Just to look at him took all the strength out of me. But what did he do? He laid his hand upon me and said, fear not. We call this Easter Sunday. And in a true Bible-believing Baptist church, we don't argue about the calendar. We're not worried about the exact date. We do not have a service that I know of that where we have not mentioned the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is an integral part of everything we do. We can't get together and not talk about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Amen? 
I tried to tell my Greek Orthodox pediatrician that, and he just looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, I know, it's supposed to be every day of the year, but don't you do something special on Easter? So yeah, we get flowers. Because we want every day to be lived in the light of the resurrection. Because that's what changes our souls. That is the essence of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Only Jesus knows and understands the horribleness of sin in its completeness. Only Jesus was capable of fulfilling. He was the only one worthy in all of history. He was the only one that has made the claim. It's interesting. There are dozens of varieties of people who call themselves Christians all over this world. Only one group acknowledges the claim that it is finished. And that's those who truly believe in Jesus Christ and the Bible alone to save them. Everybody else gives you a list of things you need to do. I mean, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon faith, said he he had come to straighten out all the problems of the church. That means Jesus failed. You know what? Jesus of this Bible never failed. You say, but I know so many Christians are so wicked. Uh, Excuse me, can we define Christian? The word means Christ-like. If you're wicked, you're not Christ-like, you're not a Christian. That's the real definition. It's time we get out of honest dictionary, amen? How can a church wage war with guns and knives and be the church of Jesus Christ? Absolutely impossible. You hear anybody start talking like that? Run the other way. They're nuts. Aside from being unsaved. Our faith is in the resurrected Savior. Just as he told John on the Iowa Patmos as these words were being penned down, he tells you today, fear not. I'm the first And the last, I am he that was alive, was dead, and is alive evermore. We come here every Sunday morning to worship the resurrected Christ. That rightfully makes me admit there's nothing good in me and everything is done by my Savior. I want to lift him up. And put myself down. Because I want him to work through my life in such a way that other people will have to notice my God. And all God's people said, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Just want to ask you to think about a few things. We end every service with a time we call the time of invitation. It would be rather dishonest of us to tell you 
that Jesus Christ has paid all the price for everything. It is finished. There's nothing left for you to do but believe on Jesus and not give you an opportunity to actually put your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Savior. That's what the time of invitation is for. Would there be anyone here that would say, Preacher, I'm not sure about my salvation. Would you pray for me? All I'm asking you to do is while heads are bowed and no one's looking around, just lift up a hand and say, Pray for me, Preacher. I'm not sure about my salvation. My prayer won't save you. Only Jesus can save you. But I'd like at least to be able to pray for you. I'll pray for you in such a way no one else will know. We're not here to embarrass anyone. We just want to give an opportunity. Would there be one in this group that just lift up a hand and say, Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure about my salvation. Okay, I see that hand. I see that one too. And yes, three, any more? Yes, yes, okay. Anyone else? Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure about my salvation. All right, you can put your hands down. Now the second point is for those who are sure about their salvation. Say, preacher, I'm not living the way Jesus wants me to live. I'm living in fear. I'm still trying to be good enough to be pleasing to God. I don't know what the Holy Spirit may have spoken to you about this morning, but how many would raise your hand and say, God, God's touched my heart. There's some things that need to change in my life. Would you pray for me? Just slip up your hand right now as a testimony to that fact all over the auditorium. More than we could count in these few moments. Praise the Lord. Let's be serious about our relationship with God. Yes, anyone else before we... Okay. Anyone else this morning? Okay. Now we're going to pray. And once the prayer's over, just going to have my wife play a hymn, one that we use often. We won't sing the words this morning. We want to give you an opportunity to act upon that which you're concerned about. If you're a Christian, you know you're saved. Just ask you to slip out of your seat and come here and spend some time at an old-fashioned altar. If you're not saved this morning, you're concerned about that. You can come forward. Just get my attention. If you're a lady, we'll try to have a lady take you to a private place and open up the Bible, answer your questions. If a man, we'll try to get a man to do the same. If you say... Preacher, I got way too many questions we can answer this morning. You see me after church and we'll make a time to sit down personally and answer all those questions. The greatest decision you will ever make in this life is to trust Jesus as your Savior. We don't take it lightly here. We want you to understand what the Bible says and make a decision based upon the Word of God. Trust the Lord as your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you saw the hands that were raised. The several hands that were raised saying, I'm not sure about my salvation. We thank you for their honesty this morning, their willingness to single themselves out. And Lord, I'm glad that I don't even need to know the names. You saw them. And we bring them before you and we ask that you would do the work, whatever work is necessary in each individual heart.
to bring them to that point to where they'll trust you as their personal Savior. Lord, you saw the many hands were raised, saying, I've already made that decision. Jesus is my Savior. I believe only in Him, but I'm not living the way He wants me to live. Lord, this is what true worship is. It's carrying the truth of the Scripture through the life that we live to the world in which we live. Lord, I'm glad that they don't need to come and tell me what the problem is. I'm glad they can confess every sin directly to God and find full forgiveness. I'm glad our salvation is not dependent upon the things we do. I'm glad our salvation was paid for completely through the blood of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Lord, we ask today that we would be simple and sincere. That we would just simply honestly surrender that part of our life that needs to be surrendered. Whether it be our entire soul to salvation or specific areas of our life that we've taken back in our sinful human nature. Lord, we ask that you would make us worthy of the name Christian. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's just stand together. We'll just be a few moments this morning. The hymn is playing. If you need to come and pray, I'd encourage you.